I'm very excited about the lesson that we are going to be digging into today, uh, Genesis chapter 2 and as much of Genesis chapter 3 as we have time for. Just a little recap from our previous lesson. Moses is the author of the first five books. Importance of Genesis, it lays the foundation for everything. That's why we're studying this book. Uh, In the beginning, God created the universe, the world from nothing, that uh, the word of God and the spirit were present in in Genesis chapter 1, that uh, when it says, let us make man in our image, that uh, that was seen by the the Christians in early days as as being the word of God who was preexistent involved in the creation of the world, as it says in John chapter 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, that... The order of the universe is a reflection of God's design, the designer behind it all. The Bible's a story in three parts. The first part, God creates man. The second part is man rebels against God. And the third part is God redeems man. And we're going to be covering the, the, uh, the second part, man's rebellion against God. God's creation of man and God's and, and rebellion against God. So the first and second parts. The creation account in Genesis 1 takes place over seven days with God resting on the Sabbath. So that's the foundation for the the idea of the Sabbath, pointing to our ultimate rest in the end. And as we mentioned in the last lesson, possibly foreshadowing the idea that Jesus would be resting in the grave for the entire day on the Sabbath before he resurrected. Let's start off in in, in today's lesson uh, in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start reading, we're going to back up in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, to to chapter 2, verse 17. I'm reading from the New King James. There are two accounts of the creation of the first man. First man is created on the sixth day when all the animals are created, the land animals. And then in Genesis chapter 2, uh, there goes into more detail. So there, there are two accounts. They're both significant. Genesis chapter 1 in verse 26. Let's start there. We're going to read a, a fairly long passage. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing. The creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I've given you every herb that yields seed and which is on the face of the earth, and every tree who yields, whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food, also to every beast of the earth and every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life. I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and morning were the sixth day. Chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. 
Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that God, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plants of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Then the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there put in the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon, which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Dilium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, and this is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third is Hittichel. This is the one that goes toward east toward Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now let's stop right there. So what we learn here is there's more detail than what's provided in Genesis 2 account. There's more detail provided in the creation of man and woman. It just says in Genesis 1 that man and woman are created. In Genesis 2, it says the man was created first before the woman, that man was made in the image and likeness of God. So what does that mean that we're made in the image of likeness of, and likeness of God? Well, that's, that's not an easy question to answer. Let's, just, let's think about that for a minute. Well, there's a lot of ways that we're not like God. God doesn't have a face, hair, hands, and feet. He's not, he's not a physical, the Father does not have a physical representation like we do. The Bible says in, in 1 Timothy 6 that God alone is immortal, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. And you can't, it's, it's one of the Ten Commandments, second commandment is you don't make any images of the Lord. So God is not created. God dwells in unapproachable light. We can't see him. So we're not like God, obviously, in that sense. How are we like God? Paul tells the Athenians in Acts 17, he says, we are his offspring. When he's reaching out to the philosophically oriented people in Athens, we're, we're God's offspring. We have free moral choice to do good or not. We can love, we can hate, we can obey, we can disobey. To be made in the image of God means we have free choice. We are different from the rest of his creation than the animals. We have a spirit. We have a conscience. 
The other thing we learn here is that man is given dominion over the earth. We don't worship, it says in Romans chapter 1, we don't worship created things. We don't worship the earth. We don't worship stones, metal, wood, trees, images, art, wealth. Nothing that is created is worthy of worship. I like one of the early Christians said, I'm in the habit of walking on the earth, not worshiping it. So uh, not, not worshiping stones. So it was a put down of the, the Greek culture of his day. But I mean, even in the new age, we're starting to see that coming back, kind of a pantheism is that God is nature and we worship nature, we worship the creation. No, God made the world and man is given dominion over the world. It's a position of responsibility. The other thing, it says at the end of the sixth day that after God created the first man and woman, it says it was very good. So man was not created bad or flawed. Man was created good and then fell of his own free choice. This is important to understand. The next thing we learn here is that man was formed, the first man was formed from the dust of the earth, which God breathed life into. In the New Testament, there are a number of problems that are being addressed in the letters that are there and and even comes out sometimes in the Gospels. Like one of the problems that's being addressed is people are trying to stick to the Old Testament law of the Judaizers. They're saying, no, you you have to follow circumcision. You have to follow the law of Moses. You have to follow the dietary rules, things like that. And so there are a number of places where it talks about that. Another uh, topic that it talks about was an early forms of Gnosticism that were creeping into the church. Now, where Gnosticism comes from, I don't know. There are different theories about whether this was parallel to Christianity and seeped in or, or whatever. But actually, there are a lot of Gnostic thinking that has invaded the church today. And as I explain what the Gnosticism is, maybe some things will come to mind. Gnostic thinking, I think it's particularly influenced modern Protestant thinking in in many denominations. It's, It's characterized by a very negative view of the material world. Uh, they have a hard time believing that God created the material world, which is, which is uh, flawed. The other thing about Gnosticism is focused on knowledge and understanding the deep secrets of the universe rather than living a righteous life. There's a belief in the immortality of the soul, but because physical things are really downplayed as not important, they, they don't believe in the, in the uh, immortality of the body. So the path to salvation, Gnosticism, was through knowledge rather than obedience and living a righteous life. So that's Gnosticism. And and several places in the scriptures are clearly against that type of of heresy. John chapter 1, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, which is a direct broadside against that kind of thinking. So particularly in the writings of John and Paul, we see this. Uh, talked about. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says, guard what was committed to your trust, writing to Timothy, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. 
And the word there is gnosis, which is what, from that, what Gnosticism comes from. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. So he sees, Paul sees this, this phony, uh, this so-called knowledge, uh, secret knowledge uh, focus, uh, the getting away from living a righteous life, and that's, and that's corrupting the church. 1 John chapter 4 and verses 1 to 3 is another passage where I think this is, this is what's in view, where he says, uh, John says, Test the spirits whether or not they have God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. So this is clearly what he's talking about. There are people in the church who believed that, or who were coming into the church, who were teaching, no, Jesus certainly didn't take on flesh. He came as a spirit because because he's divine. He certainly couldn't, flesh is corrupted. The material world is corrupt, so that couldn't have been the case. So he's saying anybody who's teaching that uh, have nothing to do with them. 1 Corinthians 15, obviously, is, is, is talking about that. There were people that, in, in Corinth who were questioning the idea that, 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 that the dead could be raised. Now, some of the errors that came out of that kind of thinking, of that Gnostic perspective, and some of these you'll see are still around today. One of them is, all sin is the same that sins involving the body are no worse than sins that are just involving your thoughts. So, therefore, committing sexual immorality is no worse than lusting. Now, Jesus says that anyone who looks at a woman to lust, in Matthew chapter 5, is guilty of committing adultery in his heart. However, In 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul talks about sexual sin is a very serious sin. I think it's in chapter 6, because you're sinning against your body as well. So sins that involve the flesh, particularly in sexual sins, are even more serious than sins that just involve the heart or the mind. So that's one thing. All sins are the same. What you do with your body is no worse than just thinking something. And actually, the, the, Paul says, no, it is actually worse than that. Another idea that came out of Gnosticism, which Paul is obviously addressing, is after you die, your body's left behind, but your spirit goes on to heaven or hell. So that one is obviously still around today. There are lots of, lots of believers who, who don't believe that. So... Consequently, if only your soul is going to be saved, only your mind and your spirit are going to be saved, and your body is basically thrown in the trash heap and discarded forever, if that's the way that salvation works, people will falsely conclude that obviously baptism can have nothing to do with salvation because baptism involves something physical with your body, and salvation, after all, is only a matter of your heart and your mind and your spirit. Justin Martyr, who, who wrote around the year 160 in Nicene uh, Fathers, volume 1, page 297 and 98, he's talking about the resurrection of the body and making his case for that. And he says, first of all, you need to understand man is body and soul. That is the nature of man. Man is body and soul. So if man is going to be saved... 
both the body and the soul have to be saved. That goes right back to the creation account in Genesis, where God is taking the flesh and breathing into it. The second thing he says, he says, man was created in the flesh. The the body is valuable to God. This is God's workmanship. This is something created by God. This is something special. The third thing he says is the body and the sin and the soul are sinning together or doing righteousness together like two oxen that are yoked together. So it's like, like a team of oxen. He says they're both sinning together or doing righteousness together, and so they both have to face the whole team gets the same, the same treatment. <clears throat> and then he says, and I'm quoting from him here, he says, not only has your soul heard and believed on Jesus Christ and with it the flesh, but both were washed and both wrought righteousness. So that's the picture. We're body and spirit. We go through life together in this a little, like an uneven team that are, that are working together. And the body, the soul has to keep the body in check, but we're, but we're in this together and we'll be judged together in the end. Another thing that came out of, of this Gnostic type thinking was that the idea that our body is kind of a hindrance. So to one extreme, they'd say, uh, it would go to extreme asceticism. Let's just punish the body. Let's mortify the body. Now, in, in, the, in, the, in the Gospels, Jesus holds up fasting as a good thing. He doesn't say if you fast. He says when you fast in Matthew chapter 6. So voluntarily, temporarily restraining the body is a good thing. Helping self-control is very important. On the other extreme, since they say the body is of no consequence, so let's just, let's just beat it up. And the, the, other, the other extreme, so some Gnostics would swing to the other extreme and say, well, the body is of no consequence, so hey, what's the big deal with physical sin? So, it would give, so some Gnostics would give away to licentiousness and fornication and adultery, saying this is no big deal because the body is of no consequence. Whereas... The, in marriage, it says the two become one flesh, that this is a physical and spiritual union in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. So just, just, just a few thoughts on this, this idea of the, the phys, man is physical and spiritual, and there are all kinds of implications of that about the resurrection of the dead, about baptism. I think that's why so many Protestants have a hard time with the idea that you have to be baptized because they don't understand God's plan is to save our body and our spirit that we will face judgment together. So man is given free choice and the first command, there's one command, it says you can eat from any tree in the garden except... except the tree of knowledge and wisdom. That's right, exactly. Adam, thank you. So except for the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's okay to eat from all the other trees. And there was one other famous tree in the, in the middle of the garden, and we'll talk more about that later. That's the, the tree of life. So there's the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and there's the tree of life. He says, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, the creation of the first woman. Let's read Genesis chapter 2. We're going to read verses 18 to 25. 
Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. And the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle and the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. But the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So we see here God provides for the man's needs. He's looking out for the man's good. He sees it's not good for him to be alone. He creates the woman to be a helper to him. Now, there's an interesting account of the creation of the woman. It says the woman was created from his rib or from his side. She's taken from him while he's in a deep sleep, part of his body, and God fashions her body out of that. So, Question is, what do we do with that account? Is this a fable? Is it to be taken figuratively or is it to be taken literally? Well, Paul, as when he talks about the Genesis 2 creation account, he takes it literally, so I would be inclined to take it the same way. When he, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, the first man was made out of the dust and the earth, so the second man is the Lord of heaven, Was made, uh, as was the man of dust, so also those who are made of dust. So the idea that Adam was created from dust, Paul confirms that. He says that that's, that's the way it was. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, talking about head covering and uncovering, he says, for the man is not from the woman, but the woman from the man. So Paul says that's one of the reasons for the head covering is because woman was made from man. So Paul took that account, seems to me, he was taking it literally that the man was created from the dust of the earth and that the woman was created from man. So I would take it the same way. The next point here is marriage is instituted by God. He says in verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, where is this mentioned in the New Testament? Where is this quoted? It's, it's Matthew 19 when Jesus is answering the question about divorce. And uh, what does Jesus say about that? He says, Moses permitted divorce under the law. Jesus said it was because their hearts were hard. And some people think it's because if, if you said you can't divorce your wife, that some of the Jews would have been killing their wives if they were having a tough time. So he says, he says the divorce was permitted because your hearts are hard, but then Jesus rolls it back to God's original plan, quoting what it says in Genesis 2.24. 
So the significance for us today is, regardless of what the world around us says, regardless of what any churches say, what God says is marriage, like the universe, was something created by God. It wasn't created by the government. It wasn't created by man. It wasn't created by a church. It's created by God. If the Bible is the standard in all things, then what Jesus said, Jesus rolled it back, the plan for marriage, from what Moses taught back to what it says in Genesis chapter 2, that, that the two become one flesh, and Jesus says, what God has joined together, let man not separate. This is a hard teaching in the modern world, but in, and when Jesus gave his teaching about divorce and marriage in Matthew chapter 5, he concluded the discussion in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 by saying, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life and there are few who find it. So, we apply that to what Jesus taught earlier in Matthew chapter 5 about divorce and remarriage. God defines marriage as one man, one woman, one flesh for life. Jesus said what God has joined together, let man not separate. So we'll just go back to doing exactly what God said and how Jesus defined it. Jesus said that divorce is only allowed in the case of adultery and remarriage is allowed only after death. That was how Jesus' teaching has been understood over the centuries until fairly recently when that's been uh, pretty widely ignored or uh, basically invalidated. I know growing up as a child in the 1950s and 60s, I only had one friend I knew whose parents were divorced, and now it's rampant. It seems like every family has been, has been impacted by divorce. So uh, the standard is what the Word of God says. It goes back to Genesis chapter 2. Jesus uses that as the foundation for his teaching on the permanence of marriage. Genesis chapter 3. Let's read the first five verses. Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So we have an introduction in Genesis chapter 3 to Satan, to the serpent. Now Satan is largely either ignored or trivialized today. However, he's very, very prominently discussed in the New Testament. He's all over the New Testament in the Gospels and the letters. How important is it to understand Satan? Here's what John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. 
For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus come? Well, there are a lot of ways you can answer that question, but John says he came to destroy the works of the devil. How much do you hear about the devil? How much do you hear about Satan in most churches and in most preaching and from the lips of most Christians? Most churches, most Christians talk very, very little about Satan. At the world at large, either Satan is a big joke with the red suit, the tail, the, the cartoons, or it's a curiosity tied in with a fascination for the occult. That no one, seems that no one takes, hardly anyone takes Satan seriously as a real th- present threat. In fact, I know a lot of people who believe in God, who say they believe in Jesus, but don't even believe in the existence of Satan. There are a lot of people like that that are out there. Over the course of my life, one of the things I'm always studying, in the back of my mind, one of the things I'm always studying is Satan. And people think I'm crazy. I tell them I devote my life to studying about Satan, among other things. And uh, I, get, I, get, I get strange looks. But I want to I convince you why it's important to study Satan, to know Satan. I think Satan, for Christians, first of all, it can give us some perspective when we're facing challenges. Job was the most righteous man on the face of the earth in Job chapter 1 and 2, and Satan asked to test him to the limit, and God permitted the trial to go forward. Jesus told Peter, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you like wheat. In Luke chapter 22, 31. In Ephesians 6, Paul says that we need to be strong, that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. He said our battle here is not against flesh and blood, meaning other people. Our battle is against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's right. Satan even tempted Jesus. Jesus, when he comes back to speak to the seven churches in Asia, he talks about, and they're very short, and sometimes just a few sentences that he has to say to the churches. He talks about Satan to four of them. The church in Smyrna is warned, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. Be faithful until death, and I'll give you the crown of life. That's in Revelation 2.10. Warning the church in Pergamum says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Imagine that. Satan has a kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of this world, and he has thrones located in different places. Where's the throne of Satan? Maybe it's in Hollywood, which is pumping out garbage to the entire world, pumping out lies. Maybe it's in Las Vegas. Maybe it's in Las Vegas. That's a good one. Absolutely. Las Vegas could be a throne of Satan uh, with the immorality and the gambling going on there. 
Uh, maybe it's New York with the wealth and the power. Maybe it's with Boston with the, the arrogance and, 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 the, and the education. Maybe it's Washington, D.C. I don't know how many thrones Satan has in the world in the United States, but if he has thrones anywhere in the world, he's probably got a few here in this country. When Jesus tells us to pray the daily prayer every day, I mean, it's the daily prayer because give us today our daily bread. Obviously, you need to pray that prayer every day. The last thing we're told to, to demand of God is... Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. When you ask God every day to your, for your daily bread, do you also ask God to deliver you from Satan? That's what Jesus says you need to pray for. The kingdom of God is on a war footing. Jesus understood that. Paul understood that. Peter understood that. He says, watch out for the devil's schemes. Peter was going to be sifted like wheat. If you're trying to lead a righteous life, what do you think is going to happen to you? Do you think that after assaulting the seven churches in Asia and the apostles, Satan's just gone on a vacation? What do you think Satan's doing right now? Satan is attacking the church. He's trying to cause division among Christians. He's trying to pull people in sin. We are at a war footing with Satan. So we need to understand when we're facing trials of all kinds, we have an enemy who's behind them. It's also important to understand about Satan in dealing with evangelism. One of the biggest problems I run into when, I, when I, I talk to people who are a little philosophically oriented, they'll ask the question, say, if God is all-powerful and all-good, why is there so much evil in the world? Why is there so much pain, so much destruction, so much sickness and death? A lot of people are drawn to atheism and agnosticism because when they look at the world, they think, well, it's us and it's God. They don't understand there's a third player in the drama that's going on here. There's an enemy that Satan is working on us to explain why there's evil in the world. God creates free choice, and there's an active agent of evil who's causing all kinds of destruction. You can't understand that. You can't fully grasp that unless you know about Satan. The other thing is, if we want to understand what evangelism really is, we have to understand Satan. When Paul recounts the story of his conversion in Acts chapter 26 to King Agrippa, he says that Jesus, when he appeared to him on the road to Damascus, commissioned him saying that Paul would be sent to open, see, be sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to to God. That's what evangelism is. Turning people from darkness to light, pulling them out of the power of Satan and bringing them to the power of God. Evangelism is not a self-improvement it's not it, it's not a self-improvement program to help somebody's life get better in this world. It's heavy-duty spiritual warfare turning people away from sin, rescuing them from Satan's control. 
and pulling him out of the dark kingdom into God's kingdom. So to evangelize the world, what it's going to take, what we need are courageous spiritual warriors. The job is not going to be done by entertaining speakers, salesmen, yes men, or corporate functionaries. This is spiritual warfare, and it demands men and women who are courageous and are equipped to do battle against Satan. So, a lifelong study that I recommend to all Christians everywhere. Study Satan. Know him. Understand his origin, his tactics, his schemes, the plays he's successfully run. As you read the Bible, learn lessons from those who've been defeated by Satan as well as by those who have successfully overcome his temptations and how they did it. Study that. At the end of the American football season, there's a two-week period before the last game. The last game is the Super Bowl. Last, I think it's in January or February. It's, 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 it's a ways off here still. So I'm not a, I'm not a, football, a football fan. When I was younger, I used to watch football on, t- on TV I don't right now, but I, I know there's a two-week two week period between the, the, the second to last game and the last game. What do you think the coaches are doing during the two weeks running up to the Super Bowl? I'll tell you what they're doing. They're studying the tapes of the opposing team. They want to know their strengths and their weaknesses. What are the plays they like to run? What's the best way to defend against them? Paul drew spiritual lessons from farming, from military, and even from sporting contests. When he talks about, I don't box like someone meeting the air and, and, and uh, uh, boxing the air and I run, run the race to win the prize. He used sporting, he learned from the sporting world around him. We should as well. We need to study the tapes that we have in Scripture. We need to know our opponent, our enemy, so that we are prepared to be victorious against him. A lot of times I have a hard time knowing what God wants me to do. It's overwhelming. I have a couple of choices in front of me. I'm facing a challenge in life. I don't know what God wants me to do. But if I ask myself the reverse question, what does Satan want me to do? A lot of times that, that the answer jumps right out to me. I know what Satan wants me to do in this situation. So if I don't know what God wants me to do, I'll ask myself, what does Satan want me to do? And I'll do the opposite of that. If you don't know which way is north, but you do know which way is south, that's good enough. Many other people have found that advice helpful. So, Now, where did this bad guy come from? It says he's a serpent, and at the end of the sixth day, when all the, the land animals created, God says, this is very good. So, so how did Satan get into this picture here? Even the creeping things that were made on the sixth day, God says they were all very good. Uh, I'll give you my, my opinion about that. Uh, it seems to me that the creation story... In Genesis chapter 1, pertains to the creation of the world and the physical universe. And 
it could be it very well could be it seems to me that the angels were around before that and are not talked about in the creation story in job 38 when god speaks to job out of the whirlwind he says where were you when i laid the foundation of the earth when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of god shouted for joy that's in Job 38. Now, Job, sons of God from Job, you know, from the beginning of Job, Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, sons of God is in front of the angels. Sons of God appear before, the Lord, uh, before God, and Satan is with them. So from that, you get the, so the angels are the sons of God, and Satan was among the angels. Uh, Victorinus, who was writing around the year 280 in Nicene Fathers, volume 7, page 341, he wrote, he created the angels and archangels before he created man, placing spiritual beings before earthly ones. Revelation 12.9 speaks of spiritual war in heaven. It says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast down to earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Matthew 25, Jesus talks about that the, the wicked will be cast into the fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So Satan is generally considered to be an angel who was fallen and took many other angels with him. Origen, writing around the year 225, writes... I'm quoting from him here. It says, Regarding the devil, his angels, and opposing forces, the teachings of the church is that these beings do indeed exist. However, the church has not explained with sufficient clarity what they are or how they exist. Most Christians, however, hold this opinion, that the devil was an angel, and that having become an apostate, he induced as many angels as possible to fall away with him. That's Anicene Fathers, Volume 4, page 240. Some early Christians believed that a third of the angels went with Satan, and that's probably taken from Revelation 12, where it talks about the, the dragon, which representing Satan, he took a third of the stars and hurled them down to the earth. A few notable Christians... Uh, Origen and Tertullian, uh, I think of right off the bat, associated the prophecy about the second about the the second prophecy about the king of Tyre in Ezekiel twenty eight uh, with the origin and fall of Satan. And Origen noted from that story that it could not have applied to a human king. I wonder. Let's read there Ezekiel chapter twelve. Uh, I'm sorry, Ezekiel chapter twenty eight. It's, it's a long passage, but if we're looking at Satan, I think it's important to take a look at this. Origen asked the question, in looking at this passage of Scripture, he says, how could this possibly have applied to any human king? And I want you to ask yourself that question as we're reading this, the description. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. 
Every precious stone was your covering, the sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub. That's a type of angel, I believe, who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I bought fire from your midst. It devoured you. And I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the people are astonished at you. You've become a horror and shall be no more forever. Let's think about this passage. It says, you were the seal of perfection. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were in the anointed cherub and angel. You were perfect in your ways from the time you were created until I found iniquity. You sinned, therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. Your heart was lifted up from your beauty. I cast you down to the earth and then ultimately devoured by fire at the end. And and, and that's what Origen says. He says, how could this possibly have applied to any human king, this description? Isaiah chapter 14 talks about Lucifer, another name for Satan. In, uh, verse, starting in verse 12, it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, or day star, son of the morning. How you were cut down to the ground. And the Septuagint says, how you're crushed to the earth. You who weakened the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I'll exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mountain of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the Most High. You shall be brought down to Sheol, which is the same as Hades, to the lowest depths of the pit. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 18, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So that's the picture of Satan as an angel. Like, like Origen said, he said, hey, you know, this is what most Christians believe back in his day. Satan was an angel who fell because of arrogance. He was cast out from heaven. As Jesus said, he saw him fall like lightning from heaven. The character of Satan... One point to remember above all others. He is first and foremost a liar. Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus speaks in the temple area to the Jews and he calls them sons of the devil. Then he goes on to describe their father, Satan. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. Some translations say he speaks his own native language. 
for he is a liar and the father of it. Satan is a liar and he is the father of lies. The lies he told to Eve in the beginning. Did God really say you shouldn't eat of every tree in the garden? That's totally, that's totally a manipulation of what God says, twisting the words of God. A bold-faced lie, you shall not surely die. Just a bold-faced total lie. And then he says, if you eat the fruits, you'll become just like God. That's a lie, and it's also misrepresenting who God is. He's saying, look, God's trying to keep you down. He knows if you eat that fruit, you're going to become like he is. So he misrepresents God, and he tells a lie on top of it. Makes God out to be the bad guy, and Satan's a real friend. What is the most potent weapon against lies and a liar? It's the truth. When Jesus is tempted three times by the great liar, he responds with, it is written all three times. He comes back with the word of God. He comes back with scripture. He hits him with pure truth. Lesson for us when we're tempted by Satan. Eve, to her credit, provided some resistance initially. She repeated back what God said, but ultimately she gave in. She gave in to temptation. Jesus says in John 14, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the truth. I I, I am the life. He calls the Holy Spirit in John 16, the spirit of truth who inspired the scriptures. In John 1, it says Jesus came into into the world to bring grace and truth. In John 8, he says, if you hold to my teachings, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. When Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king? He says, you say, this is John chapter 18, verses 37, 38. He says, you say rightly that I am a king for this cause I was born. And for this cause I've come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth Here's my voice. And Pilate pathetically comes back with what is truth. Paul says in our spiritual battle against Satan in Ephesians 6, the first piece of armor we need to put on that he mentions is girding your waist with the truth. If we want to be fighting the spiritual battle against darkness, we have to have the truth with us at all times. We have to be devoted to knowing and using the word of God, of measuring everything against the word of God. Everything we hear, everything we consider, when Satan is telling us lies, twisting things, and tempting us. The other thing is on a personal level, we have to be devoted to always telling the truth. This is hard. Loving the truth, appreciating and embracing the truth when it's good, when it's bad, when it's ugly, when it tells us things that we really don't want to hear on a personal level. We have to love the truth wherever it takes us. We have to bring the light of truth into every encounter that we, 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 we face in life. And hate deceit in ourselves. 
When we find ourselves being deceitful, we need to confess it, expose it, and bring it into the light. Because this is a battle between truth and lies. Common lies of Satan that Satan is telling all the time to believers and unbelievers alike. One, one, some, this is my, kind of my, my own personal top ten. First starting with, with lies he tells unbelievers. There are many paths to God. Not just Jesus. There's no possible way that most people on the earth can be lost and bound for destruction. That's one lie, according to Jesus. Another one. Horrendous lie. There is no such thing as objective truth. The truth is personal and subjective. This is your truth and that's my truth. To believe otherwise is to be narrow-minded and bigoted. This is extremely popular today, especially with the younger generation, with the generation of my own children, where this kind of thinking is rampant. It's total nonsense. It's a complete lie. If If somebody's house is burning down, and someone says, is your house on fire? Do you say, well, is that my truth or is that your truth? There's no such thing as my truth or your truth. Either the house is burning down or not. When you go to the doctor and you want to find out, doctor, do I really have cancer or not? You want the truth. You don't want to say, well, do you want the comfortable truth or do you want the uncomfortable truth? Do you want my truth, your truth, or the truth of the person down, you know, uh, down across the street? You want the truth. You want the truth. Either the house is burning down or it's not. Either you have cancer or you don't. Either Jesus is the Son of God or he isn't. There's no such thing as subjective truth, my truth, your truth. It's pure garbage and nonsense. And we have to bring the light into the world and blow this away. People say it's narrow-minded and bigoted. Well, you don't apply that kind of thinking to any other area of life. So don't use it in the spiritual area. Uh, Third one. Satan doesn't exist. That's a lie. Or is an insignificant bit player. So let's never think or talk about him. If bad things happen, it must be God's fault. The fourth lie. This is through music, TV, and Hollywood, which are pumping out Satan's lies all the time. It's perfectly normal to have sex before marriage, to cheat on your spouse, have an abortion, experiment with homosexuality. This is natural, and everybody does it. No, everyone doesn't do it, and it's not natural. Number five, this comes through the media and the schools. Marriage can be redefined by society, by government, or by church leaders. Or there are multiple sexual identity choices, not just male and female. And you can choose the one you want. God didn't create us male and female. Now moving on to the Christians here. It's a lie of Satan. You don't really need the word of God every day. You don't need to confess your sins to one another. As long as you're attending church, you're you're probably good. I think that's a lie of Satan. Another one. Suffering is bad. If you're suffering, 
Something must be wrong. God wants us to be happy in this life. So it's okay to invalidate any commandment of God that involves pain or carrying our cross. Think about that in light of Jesus' teachings on the permanence of marriage, unity, forgiving others, materialism, or holiness. That, that, that pain and suffering is a bad thing. Jesus said we have to take up our cross every day. The eighth one, you don't actually have to live a righteous life. Just believe in Jesus and have the right theology. Jesus was righteous enough to cover, cover me whether I repent or I don't repent. That's a total lie that's believed by a lot of the religious world. Another one that I think is a challenge for the, the more, more radical Christians, we don't really need to be strived to be unified with all Christians, like Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. Let's just be unified with my, within my own little group or my own denomination. That's good enough. That's not what Jesus prayed for. And then the tenth one, any unpopular commands of scripture that don't fit with modern culture or might interfere with evangelistic outreach can be dismissed. Start taking a look at things like the role of women, divorce, non-resistance, materialism, teachings on holiness. So I think this is a good place to stop for today's lesson. Genesis chapter 2 in the beginning of Genesis chapter 3. And uh, the next lesson will talk about the fall of, of man and woman and the consequences that came out of that. Thank you.